Welcome to the Family Fright Night Horror Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Family Fright Night Horror Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Will. Today I'm joined by screenwriter Jamie Flanagan, writer of Haunting a Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, The Midnight Club, and others. Jamie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. Thanks for having me, Chase. Yeah, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. So I start every episode the same way, asking, what is your favorite horror movie of all time, if you had to choose? Oh, man. Um, probably A Tale of Two Sisters, uh, which is uh, it's Korean. Um, how to describe A Tale of Two Sisters? It's based on old folklore, you know, sort of the evil stepmother vibe. Um, okay. And yeah, you know, it's just it's beautifully shot. Like it, it feels a little bit like, you know, uh, cinematography right out of The Shining, just these, you know, long hallway shots and these vivid colors and then you get into the family drama and it's you know it's a, a, a story about two siblings and i always respond very emotionally to sibling tragedies uh so yeah you know i think that's probably my favorite horror movie of all time and i am woefully neglectful in that i couldn't tell you who directed it who shot it any of these things can't tell you the name of the actors i can just tell you that there was an american remake um called the uninvited that uh that was that yeah really didn't do it justice now, that one i've seen so if you didn't oh, like uninvited no. check out tale of two sisters yeah yeah if, if you walked out of the uninvited like why did the beach house blow up in the first two minutes of this movie <laughs> uh then probably go see a tale of two sisters for like a nice leisurely slow burn subtle dark horror fairy tale that's the one from a uh, tartan extreme right i believe so yeah tartan does a lot of the korean releases for sure um see so yeah, i think that's tartan Okay, yeah, I'll check that one out. Now, a question I got from uh, one of the listeners is, where'd you get your love for uh, storytelling? Oh, yeah. Um, I can just rewind to like the first time I think I ever really remember, um, vividly remember someone telling me a story. Um, you know, we, we we absorb these things, of course, from an early age, but I, I'm hard pressed to tell you an example of like what the context of the first time I heard like green eggs and ham. I don't know. Like it, the memory is just not there. The first time I really have a memory of absorbing a story was, um, <laughs> I was having this nightmare as a kid. I, you know, we were on, um, uh, governor's Island, New York, which is now a tourist attraction, but used to be a military base where my brother and I spent a, a few years of our childhood. Um, and you know, we shared this room and, uh, basically, I had this nightmare that I was in a maze being chased by an alligator sheriff, which is horrible because not only is it an alligator, but it has the law on its side. <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, I woke up from this nightmare feeling horrible and very frightened. I was crying and my brother told me a story and reframed it. And in the story that they told me, they made me brave. And I think that's kind of what I love the most about the storytelling in general is that at its best, it takes something threatening to us or uncomfortable for us. And it gives us an opportunity to see it through a safe lens and to hopefully grow without ever having experienced the thing. Hmm. So where'd you get your love for uh, screenwriting? Is that something you fell into or how did you develop that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I went to uh, college for theater arts and then I was a, a stage actor for about 10 years, wow. which means that I tended a lot of bars and a lot of served a lot of tables uh and I did here, that. Man. <laughs> oh yeah it's it whatever you got to do to get by i taught adjunct i sold knives for what is it vector cutco that horrible scam where they're like 19.99 for one hour's work sure that's no, <laughs> horrible uh 
what else did I do? Uh, a bunch of crazy, crazy jobs. Uh, and then at 30 years old, I was like, ah, I should really get a job that pays the rent. I went back to school. I became an ultrasound technologist for about, oh, wow. yeah, did that for about six years. And while doing this, I still, you know, loved the arts. And Mike was out here at the time editing reality television, like fireman's challenges and things like that. <laughs> and uh, a couple of his buddies were like, hey, we want something for our reels. And uh, at the time, his uh, his partner was pregnant with uh, his first kiddo. And they're like, all right, well, we don't have any money. So why don't we, you know, shoot a couple of scenes inside the apartment and use whatever else we can to make this creepy. So uh, he gave me a phone call. He was like, hey, I got to I got to do this thing for my friends. You know, we were thinking we might make it into a feature instead of just scenes. Um, here's what we have. We have the apartment to shoot in. We have a couple of 30 something year old actors. And then we have a tunnel nearby. And, you know, I, I was just like, all right, dude. Yeah, it's the Billy Goats Gruff. Um, and out of that, Mike wrote, um, without me writing, uh, this is Mike wrote the whole, the whole, uh, script for absentia. And yeah, you know, after that I started tinkering in screenwriting because absentia did pretty well in the indie scene. Uh, and then a few years later, you know, Mike, was taken off with like Oculus and I was kind of in a darker place with the, the ultrasound work, you know, echocardiography is ultrasound for the heart. So most of the people that you work with are in some state of, you know, either you get, I mean, you get your 40 year olds who are pretty healthy, but most of the people that you see are late stage heart disease. Uh, Those are the people that have what we call a membership um, that you see them (laughs) coming back like every few months to get scanned. And it's about a 45 minute test. It's in a dark room with just you and this dying person. You understand what's wrong with them, but you aren't allowed to say anything as a technologist. So that kind of eats away at you. And then, you know, the way HIPAA is structured, uh, you also aren't really privy to what happens to them after they leave your table. So the patients that you kind of grow attached to and that you work with, uh, they just stop coming eventually. And you don't really know when, you know, they just, you're like, oh, it's been like two months and I haven't seen so-and-so. And then you can't really ask or look at their, uh, look at their medical record. You just have to assume they're dead. Um, so I was uh, between patients one day and I had like 15 minutes. And so I started just jotting down screenplay ideas. And over the course of maybe a year, I ended up cobbling together a screenplay between patients at work. I sent it over to my brother and Trevor Macy. Hey, it's always good when you're that ridiculously connected that you can pull the Nepo card. Uh, and yeah, you know, they read it and they uh, they invited me up to uh, to work on The Haunting of Blind Manor as a staff writer. And they've kept me on ever since, apparently, because I have yet to shit the bed enough to <laughs> to warrant uh, being kicked out. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of where it came from. I've always loved storytelling in general back from my theater days. And I really missed it when I was doing uh, when I was doing Echo. My hat's off to anybody who works in the, the health profession and, and the health industry. I, I just think that it's it is both essential and also absolutely draining for uh, anybody who does it. My heart really goes out to nurses and, uh, and to the folks who do um, pediatric echocardiography, which luckily I didn't do. That's ultrasound for dying children or children born with heart defects. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's a weird world out there and screenwriting helps give me a place to safely process it. Yeah. That sounds like an emotionally draining work. It is. Yeah. If you ever see an echo tech out there, you know, give them a handshake, pat them on the back, ask them if they're okay. Yeah. Buy them a beer, you know, something comfy, maybe a blanket, who knows, give them something. (laughs) 
So uh, having worked on these shows for Netflix, like The Haunting of Blind Manor, Midnight Mass, and Midnight Club, how do uh, notes affect your writing process? Like, do you start from an outline and work from there with the people you're working with? Or do you turn in a draft and then changes come? Sure. It can be a little different depending on the episode and depending on the culture of the room that is sort of formed. So basically, you know, a creator has an idea and it can be as specific as, hey, uh, here's my idea for a vampire show. It's about this guy who gets into this, you know, this car accident when he's drunk, kills somebody, and then his guilt over time ends up bringing him back to his hometown. And here's how it ends. It ends with this entire sort of religiously fanatic town getting burned to dust. can be that specific or it can just be, hey, I think it would be neat to do an anthology about Christopher Pike's works from back in the day. Um, so if you come in with Midnight Mass, you have a lot more to work with because, you know, the showrunner will already have a bunch of ideas and you and the other writers in the room while you will break the beats of each episode, uh, there's usually a, a really steady lighthouse in your showrunner. You know, they really sort of show you where it is you're headed. With something like Midnight Club, that was a lot more difficult because all we really had was a napkin that said Christopher Pike Anthology. Good luck. <laughs> and so Mike was in the room with us, banging his head against the wall, too, trying to figure out how to make Midnight Club into a cohesive season of television. Uh and yeah, you know, when it comes to episodes on that one, we break every episode as a group. So that's beat by beat. We know what happens in each scene. Uh, then you get episode assignments and people go off and they write based on the outline. Um, and then the showrunner comes back after all the episodes are written and does a final pass on all of it to make sure that voice is accurate and that there are no discrepancies between the drafts, that no writer went crazy rogue out there. Um, and then every now and again, um, in the middle of a process like that, uh, you might have an idea as a writer in the room. And you'd be like, hey, I see the thing we broke. I don't think it's the best path forward. And um, and then usually what happens with that is uh, they hear you out and they kind of wave you away because the, the outline's done and they just want to move on. Uh, if you're very lucky, um, sometimes they'll be intrigued enough by the idea that they'll give you a day or two to you know cobble together proof of concept for how an episode might look. And then you have a lot more freedom. Uh, I had that on Midnight Club with uh, the Anya episode. About the first 30 minutes of that was something that I ended up writing over a weekend to try to convince the room to let me write it. Um, and it worked. You know, they, I got really lucky. They all supported it and got behind it. And yeah, ain't always the case. <laughs> um, so yeah, they were very kind to me. And I was very lucky that they liked the ideas. So um, people have this idea that to be a screenwriter, or at least a successful one, you have to live in a certain location like New York or Los Angeles. Is that the case? It used to be. Um, you know, I went to Los Angeles for Bly Manor, and that was a physical writer's room where we all, you know, had our little office and our little communal writing space where we all got together around a, a conference table and just, you know, had whiteboards and spat ideas at each other and hoped for the best. Uh, these days... You don't really need to live anywhere in particular to be a screenwriter. These days, almost every television writer's room that I've done, actually every television writer's room that I've done after Bly Manor has been a Zoom chat. Wow. Uh, you do this for about six months. Ago. So you, you get sick of Zoom and you get sick of that, but you, the commute can't be beaten. I mean, you you stumble out of bed, you sit in front of the thing, you have your coffee next to you, and then you just do the job for however many hours and then you just close the laptop and you're done. It's really great. <laughs> That's the way to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear a lot of people miss the personal touch 
And I guess maybe it's because I was only ever in a room, a physical room one time that it, it, I don't miss it as much, but I think uh, I just worked on a show over at uh, Peacock called Hysteria. It's a first time showrunner named Matthew Scott Kane, really lovely guy. It's going to be kind of a YA horror thriller piece about the satanic panic and this uh, heavy metal band in it. And yeah, you know, that one we did entirely over Zoom, start to finish. And it was a lovely experience. And uh, as far as writing goes, a lot of people have questions about what are some pitfalls to avoid as a storyteller? Like, are there any ideas of things you should like keep in the backseat? Oh, man. Um, This is a question that I'm going to frustrate a lot of people with the answer to because I'm going to completely sidestep and dodge it with the greatest (laughs) of intent. Um, Mainly because I want to be really careful that I don't discourage anyone from writing anything that they feel passionate about. And the examples I'll use for that is like, you know, nobody, nobody, when they heard the concept for being John Malkovich was like, yeah, great, do it. You know, like that it was the script had to be finished and people had to actually see what it was that, you know, Kaufman was trying to do. Um, And in terms of television and, and market and all that kind of stuff, it changes on a dime with whatever the latest runaway success is. So after stranger things, the industry was like, Hey, we want more shows that are based on teens with some sort of supernatural threat. And then, you know, like you get, uh, (laughs) yeah. Uh, basically whatever the hit show is for the year, uh, get ready to hear a lot of people pushing you in directions that are similar and looking for things that, um, that are similar. So you can you can go that way. You know, you can try to write things that you think are going to sell in the market based on whatever's hot right now. And that's I don't want to dissuade anyone from doing that. Or you can blaze your own trail and maybe be the thing that blows off, you know, everybody's expectations that suddenly comes out of nowhere and everybody loves like everything everywhere all at once. Right. Like that's not something that you can really write and be like, this is for the market. It's like you you write that for for I, I would assume yourselves and for your loved ones and for the people that you're working with. Um, yeah, it's got the, you know, I guess I suppose the multiverse, which is really hot at the time, but you know, the, what sold the movie were these really nuanced, beautiful, <laughs> shockingly funny moments of honesty and pathos that, ah, oh, yeah, I, I know everybody adores that movie, but I, I can't shut up about it either. I think it's just great. And I don't think that's something that you could write with a bunch of executive notes. I think that's something that you, you know, hopefully have a passion for that, that you're able to develop. Yeah. Cause the, uh, the market moves really quickly, doesn't it? It's almost fluid where something that's hot today. Isn't the same tomorrow. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and that, that's a great point because you'll get marching orders for a television program to make it more like stranger things. But by the time it releases, that's three years later and people are sick of stranger things and they want something else. So yeah, you know, uh, best advice I probably have is, you know, march to the beat of your own drum within certain guidelines. If you hear from the market that they, for instance, aren't looking for a, uh, like a period piece, which is a, you know, a piece set in a certain decade in the past, and they aren't looking for say a limited series, which is just a one season and done. Listen to that kind of thing, because if they already tell you, they're not looking for like a limited you know, like a limited period piece, they're not going to buy your one season Dracula, um, mm. you know, set in 1800s. Uh, if they tell you they're looking for an ongoing contemporary 30 minute drama comedy, that's fine. Take those uh, those little boundaries and then create something beautiful within it. Like uh, the bear, for instance, like took that formula and they're like half hour drama comedy, 
and they popped out this wonderful show uh, that really sort of dissects gosh what does it dissect uh working in the hospitality and how difficult that is and how you know the the horrific amounts of stress that people in the restaurant industry deal with and it it examines it with such specificity that even if you've never worked the job you you feel taken along for that ride and it feels authentic um so you know i figure that's a hat trick right there is yeah take take the limitation and make it into a strength hmm. and getting into the craft of screenwriting if somebody is completely new to this what are some scripts you would recommend checking out to like really get into the nitty-gritty of it yeah um I know a lot of people talk about structure and, you know, they'll tell you to read Save the Cat. And I, I will not uh, denigrate any of these things. I think they're all they're all just fine. Um, I would say just watch a bunch of horror movies. And if you like one, that's the script you should read. Um, if someone tells you, oh, my God, you know, you have to go out and read the the script for possession, though, I, I do recommend reading the script for possession because it's bonkers. Um, I've never actually read Reddit. You know, I've only seen the film and, and have pictured what those words must have looked like, you know, on the page. And I'm like, I on the page, I would have found this to be indecipherable and I would have told you it would never work. And yet the film is, you know, just a disturbing masterpiece. Uh, check it out. Yeah. A lot of it's because the language feels so foreign. Uh, the cadence, the manner of speech, the, the vocabulary used, like uh, the syntax, all of it feels off. So when you're looking at it on a page, you might think to yourself, this is just bad writing. But then you you see it executed by, you know, this very talented director and you're like, oh, I get it now. It's it's about how unsettlingly abnormal the dialogue is, how everyone is treating it as though it's normal. That's that's where the unease comes from. So, yeah, long way of saying, sure, you know, read, read some of the classics if you want to. But I mean, if you go out and you watch a horror movie like, say, like The Host or something like that, like the... <clears throat> Was it Bong Joon Ho? I think did. I think. Yeah. Uh, if you yeah, if you go out and see that one and it blows your so- you know knocks your socks off, go re- go read the script and see if uh, you can glean something from what makes it work for you. And then if you can find something in the same vein that you think is you know inspirational, go for it. Yeah, you know if you want to try to write to the same beats, take a look where scares fall. Take a look where you know acts change. Take a look where. Um, I don't know if they're going to do a denouement. It's always nice when they do, but usually these days it's just a seagull pecking a corpse. It's not quite the denouement I wanted, but you know, it's the one they give you. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, this is a long-winded way of me saying, I don't know, read any script you want to read. Uh, and if you enjoy it, that makes the job a thousand times easier. Do you have a favorite script? Favorite script? Um, not particularly. You know, I, the the ones that I've read of movies that I've seen, um, <laughs> this is really funny to admit. Um, sometimes I'm just looking at them for format, like stupid things, like oh man, how did they pull off uh, uh, doing texts in this? You know, did they did they just say like the character's name and then parentheses texting, or did they you know actually create something in the, in like legend to the side? You know, like it sometimes it's just interesting to see the format that people use to do very simple things on screen that are actually take you a few minutes as a screenwriter to be like, Oh, how do we do this again? <laughs> um, text conversations are uh, becoming more and more common. You know, they have been for years. And for someone like me, who's written primarily in eighties, nineties, you know, 
period pieces, I haven't had to deal with the cell phone question very often. Uh, I think it was the fall of the House of Usher was the first time I had to write a scene that had a someone speaking into a cell phone and someone on the other end of it. And I was like, oh, God. And then, you know, they, would, they had a text conversation. I was like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it just threw me for a loop. Um, yeah, I don't think I have a favorite script in terms of just story, though. Um, yeah. Well, Jamie, man, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. No, oh, it's it's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Chase. This is a blast. Awesome. You have a great day. You too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Hey, Family Fright Night listeners. It's your host, Chase Will, here to quickly tell you about my latest novel, Moving Through, available now at Amazon.com. Moving Through follows a group of high school seniors as they mourn the death of their mentor while inciting a school-wide rebellion against censorship. Clay McLeod Chapman, author of Ghost Eaters, calls moving through a clenched jaw of a novel, complete with brutally candid prose that reads like gritted teeth. Anderson Prunty, author of Dreaditation, calls moving through a visceral soul punch of a book. You can find moving through at Amazon.com or at ChaseWill.com. Hope you check it out.